0: Good morning, Center Church. I'm going to be reading uh, the passage for today's sermon. The book of Acts, chapter 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. But promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him, and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had, brought, had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel, who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the Righteous One, whom you have now betrayed and murdered." You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison.
1: Thanks, Nathan. It's a lot of words there. Right. So, okay. Well, welcome. Good to see all of you here this morning. Um, We have a lot of ground that we need to cover today. So what I want to do today to try and cover uh, this extended section is I want to try and summarize chunks of this. Um, it's not really possible for us to preach through this verse by verse or word by word, but we can still get a picture of what's going on, and really this approach can be helpful for us as we think about how we read the Bible generally. One of the things Stephen is doing in this speech is he's trying to get these religious leaders to Jesus, okay? So, He's been arrested and questioned, okay? And now he's in the midst of this questioning, and so most of what we read was him making a defense for what he's been doing. And so what he does then is he takes a historical look back throughout the history of Israel to help them see how everything that has occurred in the life of Israel was leading up to Jesus. And so he's calling them then to gaze at Jesus, to trust in him. And this is really what we try to do every week here at Center Church as well. We are convinced the whole Bible is leading up to and looking back to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the climax. He is the point of the whole Bible. And we then, as we gaze at Jesus, are called to trust in him and to rest in him and what he has done for us. And this then is what Stephen is doing in his speech as well. This is what I'm wanting to do in my sermon today and every Sunday as well. So let's begin then with the question posed by The high priest. So first of all, just a reminder, the high priest is kind of the religious leader uh, in Israel, okay? So he's kind of the top dog in Israel. So clearly Stephen has gotten the attention of those in authority, those who are considered the higher up. So the high priest asks Stephen, Are these things so? So just a brief review on what are these things. We talked about this last week, but this is referring to the accusation that Stephen is speaking against the law and the temple and Moses. Okay, This is what we talked about last week. These religious leaders believed these things were the center of religious life, obeying the law. That, that was central to being a good Jewish person. Okay, Going to the temple, spending time there, bringing sacrifices, understanding the customs that Moses had instituted. It was adherence to these things that kept them near to God, that allowed the Israelite people to be the covenant people of God. This is what caused them to be drawn into the promised land, and and their failure in these things is what caused them to be driven out of the promised land as well. So the key to receiving God's blessing was to adhere to these things, the law and the temple and the customs that Moses had instituted. This is what the, the religious leaders in Israel believed. So these are the things, and they're asking, Stephen, then, are these things so? The fact that you are speaking against the law and the temple and the customs of Moses. So then Stephen begins his response, but I want us to notice how he begins his response. He says, brothers and fathers, we know there is ample hatred towards Stephen, okay? They've already had him arrested. He is in the midst of an intense questioning. But we see Stephen acting in a way that's consistent with what we learned about him last week. And and actually the last couple of weeks. And, And the phrase that's been given to us about Stephen is he is full of grace. He's full of grace. And he is acting towards his accusers in a way that they don't deserve. That they are not treating him in this way. So in the face of disrespect, he is giving his accusers respect. He's talking to them and about them in familiar familial terms, okay? My brothers, my fathers. These are terms of affection. Okay? So this is how he begins his defense. Okay, then we find Stephen going into this long discourse about the history of Israel and he's going to talk about some of the most well-known individuals Everyone would be aware of, okay? These individuals were well known throughout the history of Israel. Now, these religious leaders who are questioning Stephen, they know about these individuals, okay? Everyone he's going to talk about, they know about them very well. And the scriptures that Stephen is referring to, these religious leaders have memorized these scriptures many years ago. It would probably, probably be appropriate to say that these religious leaders know those scriptures better than Stephen knows them. Okay? They are experts in the law. They are experts in all of the laws referred to or contained in the temple. So we could imagine as Stephen is embarking on this defense that he is making, this historical journey through the life of Israel, that there is likely some eye-rolling that's going on, some scoffing, some chuckling that he is going to endure because they know this and they're proud of themselves knowing all these things that he's going to tell them. But this, even their reaction is vital to Stephen's point. It's vital for these religious leaders to understand and and what Stephen wants them to understand is that the path that they are on is filled with foolishness. You think you know so much. You think you adhere to these laws so well. And his whole point is, that's not the point. And so he wants to help them understand that the way that they think and what they believe is actually a path of foolishness. And so what Stephen is engaging here over this long discourse is actually a strain of theology that's become known as Biblical theology, okay, and and we adhere to biblical theology here at Center Church and many people oftentimes think Biblical theology is simply theology that comes from the Bible and and that is true, but that's not actually the aim of biblical theology, and there's, there's a number of things I could mention about it, but for our purposes this morning, I just want to highlight two aspects of what biblical theology is. So, first of all, biblical theology seeks to unify the whole story of the Bible, okay? Maybe you grew up like I did and there was 66 books in the Bible and each book was kind of considered its own story, disconnected from everything else in the Bible. What biblical theology wants to do is it wants to unify the whole Bible, to integrate all these different books, different genres be- being written at different times of history, okay? The Bible is one story. It's unifying. Well, what happened... Thousands of years ago was just as relevant to what was happening in Jesus' day as well. Okay? The stuff that happened 5,000 years before him, it's all connected. So the Bible is one story, and this one story is then unified in and through Jesus. Okay? So biblical theology would also want to say to lift up Jesus and see how he is the point of everything. Okay? And so this is what Stephen is doing in his speech. He's trying to unify everything that's happened throughout the history of Israel and show these religious leaders how it was climaxing in Jesus, how it was all pointing to him. So let's kind of walk through high level what Stephen is talking about with the life of Israel. So he begins with Abraham, okay? Abraham and the land that God promised to give to his offspring. So, he told Abraham, God told Abraham he would not inherit this promised land, but he promised to give this land to those who would come after Abraham. His offspring. And then God enters into a covenant with Abraham. So covenant is basically a way in which God relates to his people. He's making promises. And the covenant is seen through by what God does, not what his people do. Because what we know about his people is that they failed over and over. God is the one who ultimately needs to keep the covenant. And so all of this is hinged on God's promises Abraham, what he needed to do was he needed to trust God. He needed to believe the promises that God was making with him. And this is what we read in the New Testament. I think it's the book of Galatians that looks back and, and it talks about how Abraham believed. That's how he was saved, was through belief. Not by obeying all the things that God gave to him to obey, but by believing the promise. And so the result then. Of these promises being given and God delivering on his promises, his people, Israel, would ultimately worship him. God was going to be kind. He was going to give them good gifts. He was going to give them this bountiful land, this promised land. And in that then, God's people would be moved to worship him. Okay, so we go from Abraham, then Stephen mentions Joseph. So Joseph was a beloved son of Jacob. So we've got patriarchs in Israel, okay? So we've got Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. And, and these three individuals are all relating, okay? Then out of Jacob, he has sons, okay? And those sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's referenced here that these are the patriarchs of Israel. Israel. Now, Joseph was a beloved son of Jacob, okay? Second youngest of his sons. But because of Jacob's love for Joseph, and because Joseph was kind of an arrogant kid, uh, his brothers hated him, like really hated him. So hated that his brothers decided they were going to sell him into slavery, so they no longer had to be around him. And then these brothers sought to make their dad, Jacob, think that this beloved son, Joseph, had been killed by a wild animal. Okay? So then they've cleaned their hands of this brother. They no longer have the problem. J- uh, Jacob's love can go on them. But, in the midst of all that, what we read here is God was with him, and God rescues Joseph. And this rejected Joseph was used by God to save many people. And this was recounted in the story as Nathan was reading this. Okay? He saved many people, including his own family, these brothers who had rejected him and sold him into slavery. Even they would be saved because of Joseph. So, Early on here in Stephen's discourse, just a few observations that I want to highlight that we can see thus far. So, first of all, God's promise is central, okay? The fact that He is the one who is going to be faithful, that is key and that is crucial for us here. Okay? He is the one who's gonna have to see this through. Then we also see the rejection of God's servant. We're going to see this pop up more as we get through, as we go through this discourse and what Stephen is saying in the story of Stephen himself. But this idea that God's servant is rejected, okay? We see that in Joseph's life. And then also we're seeing this aspect of grace as well. Grace in a number of forms. First, that God comes to Abraham, okay? Abraham did nothing impressive. He didn't deserve it. God just chose him and selected him and said, you are going to be the leader of my people, okay? And then Joseph as well, okay? Maybe not a lot of grace in him being sold into slavery, right? But, but then God is going to graciously work in a profound way throughout his life. So all of these things are building, and Stephen is building his argumentation thus far to get to one individual, and that individual is Moses. And this is where he goes next in his defense. So he's focused here on Moses because his opponents are so focused on Moses. Essentially, they were equating him to God. So Stephen then gives some background to Moses' life. Moses was a Jewish baby. Okay? And he was born at a time when Jewish babies were being slaughtered. So then, this is a crazy story, how he gets into Egyptian royalty. He basically grows up in the Egyptian palace, right? But he gets there. And then he has all the benefits from growing up in the palace. He gets a great education, Okay, but around 40 years of age, he felt compelled to help his Jewish people. And so he returned to them. And in the midst of this, as Nathan was reading, he, he read this story of how he killed an Egyptian. And Moses thought, I'm bringing salvation to my people. They're going to appreciate this. But someone called him out on this, and then it caused him to flee. To go into exile for 40 more years. And so we also then see in Moses this idea that he also is rejected as God's servant as well. After 40 years then, God calls Moses again to come back to his people to deliver them. And we read about Moses that he is referred to as a ruler and a redeemer. Okay, so when we hear these words and we're reading the Bible, we should begin to hear whispers of Jesus in these descriptions. If the whole Bible is pointing forward to Jesus, then we should think, oh, this is a way in which Moses points forward or reflects Jesus as a ruler and a redeemer. But the whispers of Jesus in these descriptions should turn to shouts when we hear what Moses says himself. Moses said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Okay? So even inferred in this statement is this prophet is going to be like me, but this prophet is going to be greater than me as well. There is a greater one who is going to to come. He will be the true ruler, the true redeemer. So Moses did act as ruler and redeemer. He led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He performed many miracles as well as he helped deliver them out of slavery. And Stephen, he is speaking of Moses as doing these wonders and signs. But what Stephen is doing as he's pointing to Moses' wonders and signs is he's correlating God's spirit at work in his own life as well. Okay? So Moses was doing wonders and signs. Stephen is part of the reason he's standing in front of these religious leaders is because he was doing wonders and signs as well. So you see what he's doing here, right? They say, Moses is better than you, right? We need to follow Moses. And what Stephen is doing, he's trying to draw this correlation here between this man Moses, who they want to follow, and himself, whom they want to accuse and ultimately murder. So he's creating tension for them. Pointing out that God has worked powerfully in Moses and in my life as well. So going back to Stephen's speech then, soon after Israel was rescued from slavery, they again rejected Moses. So in their lack of faith, what they did is they appointed Moses' brother, whose name was Aaron, and they created their own God. So Moses had gone up on the mountain, he was getting the Ten Commandments, and the people, he was up there for like 40 days, okay? And so the people get impatient. They're like, "Ah, oh, he must have died. He's not here anymore. We need a new God. So they have this brilliant idea. Okay, we'll create a new God, uh, a golden cow, right? That's probably the first thing any of us would fashion if we were going to try and create a God, right? N- not really. But but given everything that God has done for Israel throughout their history and especially how he delivered them out of Egypt. This is ludicrous. If they would look back and see how God has powerfully and miraculously worked. And he's saying this, again, as an example for what's occurring in Stephen's day. It is ludicrous for them to dismiss the signs and the wonders that God is doing in and through Jesus' church, through these uneducated, common men who have nothing impressive, yet God is still working signs and wonders through them. But the religious leaders are so focused on themselves. They're so focused on their authority and their power and their influence and not losing these things. And Stephen says something in his speech then to highlight this reality. He talks about how back in the day when they were making this golden cow, they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. So we need to see how what Stephen is refuting, how adherence to the law is about this very thing. Rejoicing in the works of their hands. Okay? The law is essentially that. Doing impressive things for God. If salvation had or has anything to do with us, it would lead us to be prideful. And that's on display in these religious leaders. They think they are doing something, adding on to what God has already done. When we think this way, it causes us to believe the lie that we can save ourselves in some way. God gave the law to show us that we can't keep it, that we cannot save ourselves. And as Stephen is talking about historical Israel rejoicing in the works of their hands, what he's doing is he is refuting the law, at least the sense that we can save ourselves by law adherence. So we've got to remember that Stephen was described as full of grace. So, when we read that a number of weeks ago, we should begin to think at that time, or expect, there's going to be a law-grace distinction that's upcoming. And now we're getting that, right? We talk a lot here at Center Church about the law-grace distinction, or law-gospel distinction. So now we're getting that distinction, right? Stephen is refuting the law here. And what Stephen is doing then is he's demonstrating the unfaithfulness of Israel. The religious leaders who are accusing Stephen of wrongdoing think they are doing this great thing by adhering to Moses' customs and to the law that Moses instituted. But Stephen is showing, for one, how Moses himself is flawed, okay? Moses himself was a murderer. He lacked faith, yet God still worked through him powerfully. But despite all that Moses did and taught, Israel forgot God's deliverance and faithfulness that was worked through Moses' life. And so Moses' teaching then fell to the wayside. And so Stephen says in his defense, Our fathers refused to obey him, being Moses, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned away. So Israel turned away from Moses and God's law. And then it says, God turned away. He was giving them what they thought they wanted. This is a terrifying reality, when God turns away from us. So Stephen then, in his speech, moves on to talk about Joshua and David and Solomon. And his comments then are focusing in on the tent. So the tent, Old Testament, was the place that Israel would go to worship God. This is where God would come to meet with his people. And so what Stephen is doing here now is he's refuting the temple. Okay, he's refuting the temple. And he says outright, God does not dwell in houses made by hands. Okay, so what what we're seeing Stephen do here in his discourse is this idea of refutation. Okay, so in this speech we're seeing Stephen refuting Moses as a savior figure by pointing to Jesus as the one who ultimately saves. And he uses Moses' words to demonstrate this reality. He also then refutes the law by pointing to grace and how grace is better. He refutes the temple by speaking against God, dwelling in physical houses. Now, these things in and of themselves are not bad. But we've got to understand how the law and the temple and Moses are intended to get us to Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. He is our ruler and our Redeemer. The law reveals our inadequacy, but in so doing points us to the one who was adequate on our behalf, Jesus. Jesus is the true temple. He is the one who is worthy of worship. He is where we go to find rest, true rest. So Jesus is the point. And this is what Stephen is trying to communicate to these individuals And then he really drives this home at the conclusion of his speech. So these religious leaders do not understand that Jesus is the point. And so what Stephen does is he says, you are stiff-necked. You are uncircumcised. You are resisting the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying here is he's saying, you are not God's covenant people. And he's not taunting them by saying this. He wants them to see the danger that they are in. They are just like their fathers. Their fathers persecuted and killed God's prophets. And they, in that day, have betrayed and murdered Jesus. They are just like their fathers. And he says explicitly You received the law and you did not keep it. They are guilty. They are endangered. They are far from God. Yet they think they are near to Him because of their pious actions. Now, if we try to put ourselves into this setting, if we go back a number of weeks, we we can understand there's been this growing fervor that's been happening around this whole situation. Tensions have been increasing. You guys remember Gamaliel? He was the wise religious leader in Israel who cautioned his peers to take a wait-and-see approach. He said, if all of this is from God, we can't stop it. If it's not from God, it's going to die out eventually. So let's just wait and see but what we're finding here is that wise counsel has been completely thrown out the window and disregarded because what it says about these religious leaders is they were enraged, enraged, not, not just kind of mad, like I wish you wouldn't have done that. They are grinding their teeth, filled with hatred, seething, And they stick true to the nature Stephen has spoken about them. He has said, You are murderers of God's servants. And then that's what they do. They murder God's servant, Stephen. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, is killed by those who are resisting the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I've got three points of gospel application for us this morning. Stephen, in this speech, has done a really good job of setting up why we do gospel application each week here at Center Church. We don't want to walk out of here thinking about all the things we need to do for Jesus. We want to walk out of here thinking about all the things Jesus has done for us. And then exhale, rest in him, say thank you Jesus, praise your name, you are enough. That's how we want to walk out of here. And so three points of gospel application for us today. First of all, grace is dripping from this story. So there are so many examples that we could point to in this. Okay, but first of all, we are introduced to a man named Saul who will eventually be known as Paul. And, and we won't get into his story for a few more weeks. But the mention of his name hints at grace because this is the man who is overseeing overseen Stephen's execution and approving of it and he is also the man that we will come to find writes two-thirds of the New Testament as well, and God will use him in unbelievably profound ways. So even the mention of his name speaks of grace. Secondly, we read at the end of this story, there arose a great persecution against the church, and we might wonder where the grace is in that, right? But as we read on, it says, they were all scattered. And so the grace in this is the message of Jesus starts spreading like wildfire. Persecution drives the gospel out. These people who have been saved by Jesus are now going to other regions with the greatest news ever. And people who have not encountered Jesus are going to encounter Him. And many people are going to be saved. Many people are going to put their trust in Jesus. And so, God uses even persecution to further the gospel. This is one of the great promises we get in the New Testament. That God uses all things for our good. Even persecution even grisly killings of his people, he will take that blood and sow seeds in the ground and the gospel will advance through that. Third is Stephen. This is a man we read about being full of grace. So we saw how he addressed his accusers with respect. He's not defensive. He's not hateful towards those who hate him. Also, he is telling them the truth. A truth that they hate. But a truth that they need to hear. And he knows this won't go well for him. But he is willing to suffer the pain of their hatred, their anger, so they might know the truth of Jesus. And we also see grace dripping from Stephen in his similarities to Jesus in his death, which we could list a number of things here. But I want to highlight just one thing. And this is also the reason we know he's not filled with hate towards his accusers. Why I said earlier, he's not taunting them in what he's doing or saying. But Stephen prays as he's dying, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin Against them. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he says to his murderer's father, or about his murderer's father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is mind-blowing. In some sense, we've got to understand, like, we've got to think, is Stephen mad here Like, what has so grabbed hold of this man that he does not want justice for his murders? He wants grace. There's unbelievable love when it says this man is full of grace. That's what it looks like. It's crazy. Now, this isn't a call for us to be like Stephen. It's a call for us to trust in the one Stephen trusts in. This isn't a call to put our trust in the works of our hands. It's a call to receive grace that's only found in Jesus. Stephen is acting, living this way because Jesus has come to him and he's seen the depth of his own sin. He understands he is evil. He's wicked. He deserves God's wrath, but what he's been given is God's kindness, forgiveness. Grace radically changes people. And this is intended to intersect our everyday. When someone cuts you off in traffic, it's intended to shape how we respond in that moment. When a child sasses you, it's intended to shape how we respond to our kids. When our spouse says something to us that is really hurtful, this is intended to shape us. In every part of our life, grace is intended to shape us, to change us, So what we find is grace is dripping in this story. Secondly, the agony of rejection leads to the beauty of salvation. There was a theme that was running throughout this story. Joseph was rejected, but it led to the salvation of many. Moses was rejected, but salvation occurred for many through his life. Stephen was rejected, yet the gospel spread like wildfire as people are dispersed in those regions. Ultimately, this is all happening as a means to point forward and for us today as we're reading it to point back to Jesus, the one who suffered death, who was rejected by his own, yet provides us true salvation. This again is a picture of grace. God even uses rejection for his good Purposes. He uses persecution. He uses rejection. And so the agony of rejection leads to the beauty of salvation. So with all this being said, Jesus is who or what you are looking for. I just want to press this and state, explicit, state explicitly that, that Jesus is what you want. Because I know we're going to walk out of here this week and we're going to wish some circumstance in our life is going to be resolved in a certain way. And we do long for that. But in the face of threats, in the face of depression, in the face of trouble, in the face of death, in the face of conflict, in the face of discouragement, or anything harmful that this broken, sinful world throws at us, Jesus is who we need. And I'm not saying medicine or money or anything else can't be helpful. I'm not saying you can't pursue those things. But our tendency to seek those things oftentimes comes at the exclusion of Jesus, or at least the minimization of Jesus. Jesus stands over all of it. When death comes, and it will, Jesus will be the one who wakes us up, who greets us. He is ultimate. His goodness is far greater than anything that this world has to offer. And so I want to press us, to press in to Him, to hear this reminder, you need Jesus I need Jesus. We need Jesus. So trust Him. Rest in Him. Seek Him. Understanding He has sought you. He is seeking you. He loves you like no other. Okay. So we're going to take a few moments now to reflect on Jesus' willingness to be rejected, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be saved. We're we're going to consider how his blood dripping from his beaten body is the means for us to receive grace. Jesus is the answer to our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is sin. Jesus is the answer to that, which then means he's the greatest answer to everything in our life. He is what we need. He is what each of us is looking for. We might think we're just looking for a lazy night at home, but ultimately what our heart is yearning for is rest. Rest in Jesus.